Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I am Michael Kingswood, retired naval officer, Christian, dad, and writer extraordinaire. I mostly focus on science fiction and fantasy, but I've been known to write just about everything under the sun, including the occasional romance. The purpose of this podcast is to share my stories with you, the reading slash listening public. So sit back and relax, because I'm going to tell you a story. Hi friends, I'm Michael Kingswood. It is story time, story Saturday, and we are back reading stories again. The last couple weeks have been weird. But anyway, so we're continuing on with the stories that I wrote last year as part of 52 Stories in 2023. Uh, We're doing the second one from Volume 1 this week. I intended to do that uh, earlier, but it is what it is. Um, This one is a fantasy caper modern fantasy so set in the modern world but with some fantasy elements and it's called spirit foreclosure um without it's a little bit longer than some of the other stories that i wrote for these uh these uh, collections so we'll so it's going to be a little bit of a longer episode so we'll just get right to it hope you enjoy it i'll talk to you on the other end It was one of those formal occasions that Sylvie normally hated. A large ballroom on the mezzanine level of the Peninsula Hotel downtown, which made it a pain in the neck to get to in the first place, with 20-foot ceilings boasting crown molding that was designed to look hand-carved but was probably prefab. Half a dozen crystal chandeliers lent a soft white glow that combined with the pale beige of the walls to make the place seem warm, despite the AC being set just a little bit too low. There was plush red and blue carpeting on the floors, and formal dining tables for eight, scattered all over in front of the long, raised VIP table and lectern opposite the entrance. Bars stocked with top-shelf wine and liquor bottles stood in each of the room's corners, and everywhere, men in tuxedos that stood out in their uniformity, and women in evening gowns that varied from stylishly tasteful to slightly above hooker tier in their slinkiness. A string quartet played off to the right, Bach, unless Sylvie missed her guess, just loud enough to be heard over the general din of hundreds of conversations taking place all at once. Off to the left of the VIP table stood a large display placard, with gold text on a black background that read, 22nd Annual Humanitarian of the Year Awards, above a portrait of the guest of honor, Terence Manahan, plump-faced and gray-haired, with a smug, self-satisfied smile on his face, staring out of the crowd. The room smelled of various women's perfumes, flowery and subtle and musky, and hit you over the head with lavender, and the occasional aftershave from the men, and the subtle owner of steaks and chicken, wafting from the tables from the meal that the waitstaff was just finishing up serving. Torture. But necessary for this night's work. Sylvie stepped inside, her feet already aching from the dark blue pumps she had forced them into earlier. The silky smoothness of her evening gown dark blue to match the pumps, ankle length with spaghetti straps and a neckline that plunged just enough to hint at her cleavage, offset that discomfort, but just barely and not enough to stop her longing for her usual sneakers and yoga pants. But again, necessary tonight. Beside her, Jeremy gave her a wry, sidelong look, his gray-green eyes flashing with a mixture of pity and amusement beneath his roguishly combed red-brown hair. Suck it up, he didn't say, though she could feel it wafting from him. Shut up, she said under her breath, and he chuckled. 
Just be glad we don't have to be here all night, he said softly in his rich baritone. He looked around quickly, then focused in on the bar set up to the right, where a perky-looking blonde in the pseudo-tux of the waitstaff stood holding court over her liquor domain. I'll get us some drinks. Go do your thing. He didn't wait for her to reply, but strode briskly toward the bar. And the bartender. No doubt he had more than drinks in mind. And for a moment, as she watched his efficient, almost elegant stride and the way his shoulders filled out his tux jacket, she almost envied the girl. Almost. She knew better than to let him in that way, though, and anyway, she had her own target in mind. As she wove her way past the tables for the rank and file toward the VIP area, tides of feeling ebbed and flowed over her. The gift of her lineage. Jealousy from a mid-forties brunette as she stared at her husband who was spending far too much time talking to the twenty-something blonde sitting next to him. Frustration bordering on anger from a waiter who stalked past her on his way about his duties. Embarrassment from a teenager standing with his father, talking to a woman who was far too old to be wearing a dress that practically flopped her boobs out as he squirmed to try to mask his body's reaction to the sight. The older woman's satisfaction that she could still have that effect on a male, even, especially, one that was far too young for her. Those and dozens more, the inner feelings of each and every person she passed. Sylvie squirmed within herself as she picked up the pace, babbling to ignore the feelings keep focused on the task at hand. This is why she hated these sorts of large gatherings, any large gatherings really. Too hard to filter all the feelings out. Inwardly, she thanked her lucky stars that she only had the empathic gift. Others of the spirit touched were full-on telepaths. That would have been hell on earth. For a moment, she questioned the wisdom of agreeing to this job. A large part of her screamed to get out of there right now. Go someplace quiet, where she wouldn't be accosted by so many, from all sides. She shoved that down, hard. She was here, and I get the job done. Behind the lectern, higher up on the wall, was a large screen for displaying presentations. From their earlier scouting, the computer controlling it was to the left, behind the display placard, where the guy running the show could work without being seen by the crowd. And yes, as she rounded yet another of the dining tables and got an angle on the placard, she could see it. And the presentation guy, at work, making his final preparations. Sylvie smiled with anticipation. Got him, she said. In the earpiece hidden away inside her left ear, she heard Russ's voice. All set here. She moved in for the kill. Three weeks earlier. When Sylvie answered the knock on her door, she wasn't surprised to see Jeremy. He hadn't come around in months, but somehow it seemed perfectly natural that he would show up on a Sunday afternoon, smiling that winning smile of his. He was in khaki cargo pants and a navy blue polo shirt, and he had a Starbucks cup in each hand. Hey, Sylvie, he said, and held out the one in his left hand toward her. Even without the feeling of cautious purpose seeping off of him, she would have immediately been on her guard, no matter how natural it seemed for him to be there. Jeremy, she said, and caught herself adjusting the loose pink t-shirt she wore, so it would settle better on her shoulders. That almost automatic reaction to his frank gaze just made her distrust go all the higher. Been a while. Too long, so I figured I'd see what my favorite spirit touch girl's been up to. She snorted and snatched the coffee cup out of his hand, then turned back into her little apartment, and it's smaller, in living room slash entryway. His sense shifted from cautious purpose to almost genuine curiosity for a second, 
as he followed her inside and looked around at her black leather couch, which showed many more creases from wear than the last time he had been here, and the glass-topped coffee table in front of it, and in particular the empty bottle of Jameson and trio of shot glasses sitting in the middle of it. Hard night last night? Sylvie shrugged and settled down into her matching leather-stuffed chair and took a sip of her coffee. He got it right, as always. French roast with just the right amount of cream. No sugar. What do you want, Jeremy? Can't a guy catch up with an old pal? She raised an eyebrow, ignoring completely the feigned look of hurt on his face. His emotions hadn't changed at all, except for a hint of amusement that barely touched the purpose that dominated him. He returned her gaze for a moment, then shrugged and sat down on the edge of her couch. He placed his own coffee mug down on the table without drinking. I've got a job. You usually do. Jeremy flashed a quick grin. Simple scam, but it needs someone with your talents. You available? Could be. What is it? It's a real Robin Hood bit. You'll love it. Hotshot real estate guy who's been scamming the little folk. He raised an eyebrow. He scammed the wrong guy, though, and we're going to make him pay. A shiver ran up Sylvie's spine, and for a moment she wasn't in her living room talking with Jeremy anymore. She was eight, watching her mother sob uncontrollably on her father's shoulder as it drove away from their home in a cab, not understanding why Dad said they could never go back. The look of devastation on his face, even while he was trying to console Mom. She was starting to clench her fists. The resistance of the Starbucks cup up against her hand's pressure snapped her back to reality, and she gave herself a little shake. Moving slowly, carefully, she set the cup down atop the coffee table, then looked back up at Jeremy, carefully smoothing her face to neutral. But she could see in his eyes, feel from his emotions, that he had noticed, and knew that his words had the effect he wanted on her. She knew it, too. It almost didn't matter who the target was. She was in, and she knew it. They both did. Who? Jeremy grinned broadly the grin of a predator who smelled unsuspecting prey, and raised his other eyebrow to join the first. They met to make their preparations in the same place as the last scam Sylvie had done with Jeremy, a conference room in the Macmillan building. It was one of those places that rents office and meeting spaces to businesses that either don't need or can't afford to maintain permanent spaces. Jeremy had a phony business that he used to rent the spot, Dimension Concepts Incorporated. Or maybe it was real, Sylvie didn't know for sure, and didn't really care. Regardless, it made for much finer digs than most of the other crews she worked with used. The conference room could have belonged to a Fortune 500 company, all mahogany table and hardwood floors, a big LCD flat screen on the wall, and teleconference gear at each spot at the table. A computer terminal at a small desk next to the screen to control the teleconference gear or run presentations, tasteful landscape paintings on the walls the faint scent of pine on the air from an air freshener somewhere. Much, much nicer than her usual. She recognized one of the two men in the room when she and Jeremy arrived. Russ was a short, skinny, mousy-looking guy in his early thirties who was already fully gray and starting to go bald. You wouldn't figure him for a tough guy, but she happened to know he was a champion amateur MMA fighter. A welterweight, but still... You would figure him for an IT guy, though, and surprise, he was. He was sitting at the conference room's computer, typing away doing something in a red and blue plaid flannel shirt and jeans, his wire-rimmed glasses low on his nose. When she entered, he looked over, saw her, and smiled broadly. Hey, Syl, long time no see. 
It gave off strong waves of friendly affection, and beneath it, a more carnal desire that flashed and then almost immediately crumbled. She assumed he suppressed it by the discipline that made him a champion fighter. He certainly had never tried to make a pass at her. Which was wise of him. How have you been, Russ? He shrugged. Same old, same old. You know how it is. What? You didn't say anything about having a spirit touched on the crew. Sylvie looked over at the stranger, sitting at the center seat on the opposite side of the conference table from the entrance. Asian, from his bone structure Korean, unless she was very far off base. Average height, muscular, not bad-looking, in a white collared shirt that had the top two buttons open. He wore a silver watch on his left wrist and kept his hair closely cropped, and he was looking at her with eyes that didn't even begin to express the waves of distrust that flooded off him. It wasn't the first time someone had reacted to her lineage that way, but Sylvie found herself impressed, actually. Some spirit-touch traits showed plainly for all to see. Hers were easier to miss, a very slight pointing to her ears, the faintest of silver tinting to her skin. Most people didn't notice at all. He had plainly had more interaction with her kind than the vast majority of the populace. Russ scowled over at him. Calm down, Vic. It's not like she's a vampire. Vic returned the scowl. Vampires aren't real. Sylvie put on a well-practiced, secretive little smile. Are you sure about that? She pitched her tone carefully, inflections that she knew from a lifetime of absorbing the emotions and fears of those around her would trigger his fear response. It worked. Better than she thought it would. He gave a jerk, almost pushing his seat back from the table he recoiled so hard, and his eyes went from merely distrustful to suddenly terrified, this time accurately mimicking the emotions within him. Beside her, Jeremy cleared his throat loudly. That's enough. From the corner of her eye, she saw he was giving her a hard, no-nonsense stare. He knew exactly what she had done, and his expression screamed that he would not tolerate it. The sharp focus, the feeling of determined command flowing off him, confirmed it. She returned his look and nodded, then let out a slow breath and looked back at Vic. She made a little apologetic shrug of her shoulders. Vic, this is Sylvie, Jeremy said, still eyeing her for a moment. I've worked with her for years, and yes, she's on the team. He turned his commanding gaze back to Vic. If that's a problem for you, you can go, and we'll get someone else to do your part. Vic's immediate fear response was fading, replaced by a front combined with what could only be called professional assurance as he returned Jeremy's look and snorted. No one else is as good as I am. His eyes flicked back towards Sylvie for a second. I don't like the idea of someone poking around in my head. If it makes you feel any better, Sylvie said in a normal, conversational tone, I'm not a telepath. I can sense your emotions, that's all. So much better, he said, sarcasm dripping from his voice. Jeremy gestured toward the entrance. There's the door. Desire to be gone fought with something else inside Vic. Professional pride? He stewed back and forth for a few seconds, then blew out a breath and nodded. If you trust her, fine, I'm in. He looked at her again. Just stay out of my head. No problem with that. Silence lingered for a couple seconds as Jeremy just stared at Vic. Finally, he returned the nod. Okay. He looked back at Sylvie. Sylvie, Vic has a PhD in quantitative mathematics. He worked on Wall Street for 10 years and used to moonlight as a researcher for the Federal Reserve. Still do, actually, Vic said, and Jeremy raised an eyebrow, surprise flooding through him momentarily before he went back to his calm feeling of command. And he's right, Jeremy went on. You won't find a better finance and money guy anywhere in this country. Wow. 
What was a guy like that doing in this business? Then Sylvie remembered Enron and Bertie Madoff, Ponzi, and half a dozen others, and it made sense. Nice to meet you, she said, putting on a conciliatory expression and the tone to match. He just nodded silently in response. Well, Jeremy looked at Russ. All set? Russ nodded, and Jeremy took the seat at the head of the table, facing the LCD screen, and gestured for Sylvie to sit as well. She took the seat directly across from Vic. The lights lowered and the screen turned on, and Russ entered a keystroke on the computer. A picture came up of a man in his fifties, plump, but in the way that said he used to be in very good shape not so very long ago. He wore a navy blue pinstripe suit and a red power tie and was mid-stride down a city street with a black briefcase in his hand. The mark is Terrence Manahan. He's basically the king of local real estate financing, and he's made a living screwing over the people who borrowed from him for decades, while making the world think he's a really good guy. So he's just like everyone else in the business, Vic said. Pretty much, Jeremy agreed. Two months ago, he used loopholes in the fine print of his mortgages to foreclose on two dozen families. From Russ, Sylvie sensed a front that almost but not quite matched her own though hers was buried beneath a deeper, remembered pain that she had to work hard not to let show. From Vic? Detached, professional curiosity. A hint of admiration? She hadn't truly taken offense to his earlier reaction to her, but now she found herself actively disliking him. It was petty, born of her own feelings. No reason he should truly care. That didn't matter. He should. What Manahan didn't know is one of the families was the brother, of one of the people at the accounting firm he contracts to handle his company's books, his wife, and their five children. Our client knows the ins and outs of Manahan's financial setup, and he wants payback for his brother. Understandable, Sylvie said, careful to keep her voice professionally neutral despite the continued turmoil within her. Jeremy nodded. How much is our client paying us, Vic asked. Nothing. Vic opened his mouth, but Jeremy walked over what he was about to say. Manahan will be. In three weeks, he closes a $100 million deal to purchase residential and commercial real estate in three states. He's got partners and financing lined up, and when he pushes send on the payment, we're going to intercept it and divert it to wherever we want it to go. Vic pursed his lips. And where is that? Glad. Greenpeace. A fund to reimburse the affected families. And, of course, us. 10% split four ways. Do the math. I take it he's a Republican, Russ said. And he puts on airs of being a Christian. Where else should he be donating, am I right? Jeremy couldn't keep the anticipatory amusement from his voice. Chuckles all around, Sylvie included. Made sense to her. So what's the catch, Vic said. There can be no link leading back to our clients or the accounting firm. It has to look like Manahan did this himself. Jeremy looked at Vic. And of course the money can't be traceable to any of us or to the families. Vic nodded slowly. I can think of a few ways to accomplish that. Could get complicated, though. It would help if I had direct access to the company's financial system. I thought you'd say that, and that's the rub. He looked at Sylvie. You'll have to get us inside. Daytime or at night? Jeremy shrugged. Maybe both. Russ and I have done a bit of scouting, though, and I think we've found a way in. He grinned at her. He's just your type. The image on the screen shifted to a young man, early twenties tops, sitting at a table in a mall's food court. He had scruffy brown hair and a little dusting of a mustache. He was sipping on a fountain drink through a straw and had on a white, short-sleeved collared shirt that screamed nerd, 
from the mouths of the trio of pens he had stuck into the breast pocket. His eyes had a faraway look, like he wasn't focused on his surroundings. Sylvie rolled her eyes slightly. Not her type at all. But probably perfect, all the same. Let me guess, she gave Russ a teasing little grin. He's an IT guy. Russ returned the grin with one of his own. Bingo! On-site tech support works directly for Manahan's CIO. Name's Thomas Billinger. And as you can imagine, he's lonely. The next screen showed multiple profiles from basically all the online dating apps, including several Sylvie had never heard of. All Billinger, and not one of them worthy of a second glance. Poor Thomas did not know how to present an appealing case. So it's charm poor Tommy and get him to do what? Russ leaned forward in his chair. It can't look like an outside breach. It has to originate within Manahan's organization. So we'll need admin-level access to their system, and in particular the finance side. We need to get his login credentials, he pointed at Billinger. Sylvie frowned, but that won't make it look like he did it, not Manahan. Russ blinked, then returned the frown. Jeremy nodded. Good point. After a few seconds of silence as they pondered, Vic snorted. So just find a different admin account. They must have a generic login, or we get him to make one. Then once you're in on that account, change Manahan's password. Then we do what we do and use your admin account to change it back again. Russ blinked again, then chuckled. I suppose that could work but he sounded doubtful. One thing at a time, Jeremy said. Sylvie, you and Russ get cracking on young Tommy here. Figure out what the best way to go is, and we'll meet back here in a couple days. Vic said, and I'll get started lining up the transactions. He pursed his lips. This could be fun. The hardest part about linking up with Tommy was deciding which of Sylvie's five Tinder accounts to use. In the end, she decided on Sarah, the pretty and friendly legal secretary who was looking for a smart, reliable, nice guy because she was fed up with all the jerks out there. Every nice guy's fantasy that never pans out. A couple DMs later, they were in a Starbucks. She with her French roast, he with some frothy frappa something or other. It was easier than she thought it would be. He really was terribly lonely. It wafted from him in waves that would swamp the Titanic. And he also really, really liked her. Part of her felt sorry for him. Wow, that's really interesting, she said, in tones that would make him feel it was genuine without pushing over into the realm of flattery. He nodded emphatically. Yeah, we're doing it right. He leaned forward over his cup, eagerness to share, to impress, spilling off of him. Some places talk a good game about protecting client data, but they all get hacked and their people get doxxed. He put on a smug smile. That can't happen with us. She made an exaggerated shudder. Yeah, a couple of years ago, we had a disgruntled former client who managed to hack into our database. Trying to get his money back, I guess? She shook her head. Some confidential information got stolen and the partners went into a tizzy about it. Tommy shook his head sympathetically. Did they catch him? She nodded. Yeah, he's doing 15 years, I hear. Well, serves him right. But you really needed one of these. He fished into his pocket and pulled out a key ring. Three keys on it, a Volkswagen, a bicycle lock, and probably his front door. There was also a rectangular black hunk of plastic with a little screen on one side next to three buttons. Sylvia blinked. What is that? She didn't have to fake her intonation to show curiosity. This time, it was genuine. You know about two-factor authentication? She nodded. I hate that. Every stupid app wants to send me a code on my phone. It's very annoying, and what if I don't have my phone with me? She made that especially plaintive. Helpless, almost. Tommy nodded. Yeah, lots of issues with that method. 
This, he held the piece of plastic up between them, does the same thing without a phone. He dug his fingernail into a notch on the side of it, and a USB plug flipped out. You log in with your password, and then when the computer prompts you, you plug this in. He pointed at the little screen and buttons. Enter your PIN code, and then you're in. Tommy grinned. It's encrypted, so it can't be hacked, and it identifies you individually, so the system knows you're a legitimate login. Wow, she reached out, and Tommy let her take it. Sylvie turned it over in her hand, examining it. The screen looked like a simple old-school LED, probably only for showing numbers, so low resolution. The two smaller buttons were labeled plus and minus, and the larger, enter. She handed it back to him. So how would you enter your pin code with those buttons? She put a subtle emphasis, a twisting of the intonation onto the you and your, tuned to appeal to his desire to impress, and his self-satisfaction. This part was always tricky, but if she got it just right... His eyes lit up. Want to see? She nodded, then he bent over to the laptop bag that he had set down next to his chair when they sat. He came back up with an HP laptop, scooted his chair around the table so he was catty-cornered to her, then opened it up. It's like this, he said, and he went through the process he had just described. She watched carefully. He typed too quickly for her to catch all his password, but it was seven keystrokes containing Q, 8, and lowercase l. But the LCD on the 2FA device did indeed show his pin as he entered it. 26189. Wow, that is really easy. He nodded, and effective. He waggled a finger at her. You should tell your partners about it. Maybe you'll get a bonus. Sylvie giggled softly. Oh, I doubt that. They're tight when it comes to money. Tommy rolled his eyes and gave a little snort. Tell me about it. My boss? He shook his head. You know he has a separate 2FA fob for financial transactions? Sylvie blinked. Seriously? Yeah, guess he doesn't trust us or something. Mr. Manahan himself has to approve transactions over a certain amount, so you can imagine the Christmas bonuses are not exactly huge. A certain amount of bitterness crept into Tommy's voice when he said that, but he was feeling anxiety, deep anxiety, and disappointment. Like he needed money, and he had thought the bonus would set him up, and then he got let down. Hard. That sucks, she said, and slipped her hand over top his, giving it a gentle squeeze for a second. He blinked, surprise followed by pleasure, flooding through him at her touch. So he's carrying two of these things on his keychain? That's starting to get bulky. Tommy frowned slightly, then shook his head. Nah, I think he keeps it in his safe somewhere in the office. No need to bring it home, right? Right. That is a big problem. Russ looked and sounded grim. He felt worse, almost hopeless. They were back in the conference room, and Sylvie had just given the rest of the team the rundown on her time with Tommy. There must be a way around it, Jeremy said. Rush shook his head. No, these sorts of setups are solid. The fobs are usually SHA-256 encrypted, so forget hacking it. Unless we actually had Manahan's fob and PIN code, we're out of luck. Silence around the room as everyone pondered that. Frowns also. Vic blew out of breath. Well, that sucks. I've got a great setup for the money. He shook his head. Hate to let it go to waste. Jeremy perked up a bit. What is it? Well, from the info the accountant gave you, the funds will be transferred from three of Manahan's accounts. I plan to divert the money into six dummy accounts at banks in the Caymans, then into four crypto exchanges. I'll convert them from Bitcoin to Verge to Doge to Ripple to Ethereum, then back to Bitcoin and into six separate ledger wallet addresses, then back to the crypto exchanges to convert to dollars then four different Forex markets, 
uh, we'll convert to euro, then rubles, then yuan, then to Swiss francs. Separate accounts for each transfer, of course. He drew a deep breath. Then I'll send it all into several numbered Swiss accounts. We can make dispersals anonymously from there. Sylvie blinked. Twice. That's a lot, she said. Vic shrugged. It's a lot of money. He grinned. And I'm pretty sure I can work the arbitrage to make a profit off the whole thing, too. Jeremy chuckled. Of course you will. And how will we justify the payouts to the families? Another shrug. Don't pay them. More for us. In any other circumstance, Sylvie could relate and agree, but eight-year-old her screamed that that was unacceptable. Vic noticed her glare and cocked an eyebrow at her. What? Jeremy spoke before she could. No, the deal with our client is they get made whole. Find a non-profit, a goodwill donation center, something. Some excuse to get them the money without it biting them or us in the ass. Vic frowned, looking hard at Jeremy for a moment. Then he shrugged again. Fine. But it'll have to be spread out over time. It's easier to justify that than a big lump sum all at once. Whatever, just figure out a way. He looked back at Russ. Assuming we can even get the money to begin with, Russ, there's really nothing we can do with this fob thing? Russ spread his hands helplessly. I can't hack it. Can you figure a way to get Manahan's code? Jeremy was silent for a long couple seconds. No. Then I don't know what to tell you. A thought occurred to Sylvie. Hold on a second. These fobs, they're what, a flash drive with some encryption on it that's code activated? Well, not really, but the analogy is close. So how much storage space is on them? It doesn't really work like that. It's... He stopped, and she could see the wheels turning in his head. Sudden excitement, tempered with caution, bloomed within him. Sylvie, did you see the model of the fob? Who makes it? She frowned, thought, then shook her head. Well, there's only a few companies that make things like that. If I can get my hands on one and verify what I'm thinking, there may be a way after all. Oh? Jeremy leaned forward in his chair. How? Let me and Sylvie work on it. I'll get back to you in a couple days. Sylvie felt pretty satisfied when she sat back down at the conference table two days later. Russ was streaming satisfaction like the sun. Jeremy looked at the two of them with a weird expression on his face. His emotions showed curiosity, but also confusion. You two looked like you won the lottery or something. We pretty much did, Russ said. I ran Sylvie through the models on the market, and she was able to identify the fob Manahan uses. Then I went and picked one up. He reached into his pocket and pulled the exact duplicate of the thing Tommy had shown her in Starbucks. Okay, Jeremy said, his tone saying, get on with it. Russ grinned. It's not a hard drive, per se, but there is information stored on it. The SHA-256 algorithm, mostly. But there is a small ROM section for holding a rudimentary operating system for the user interface and some other technical things. Now, he leaned forward in his chair. I'm pretty sure I can access the ROM and add a little bit of extra code. Jeremy's eyebrows rose, and Vic perked up. He felt intrigued now. Russ nodded. A little virus, if you will, to trigger the transactions we want. Jeremy opened his mouth, but Russ held up a hand to forestall him. It won't be a lot of code. There's not enough storage for that. Just a trigger. I'll have to plant the main virus code in Manahan's system buried deep. Then when he puts in the fob and enters his pin, the trigger activates the main virus, the transactions get changed, and the money flies. So we'll need to get Manahan's fob to modify it. Russ nodded. And we'll need access to his system. He turned to look at Sylvie. You're going to have to get the rest of Tommy's password, and we'll need to borrow his fob. Sylvie chewed it over for a second. I'm pretty sure I can get him to log in in front of me again, she grinned slyly. He really, really wants to impress me. 
Don't we all, Jeremy said, drawing a short laugh from Russ. Vic cracked a tiny little smile, but that was it. So the way I see it, he raised his right hand and began taking off fingers. Sylvie gets the password from him, then we get his fob. At night, while he's asleep, is best, I think. And break into Manahan's office, find his safe, crack it, and get his fob. Log into the system and plant the virus. Plant the trigger on Manahan's fob, then put everything back and watch the fireworks. He raised his eyebrows at Russ. That about cover it? Yep. Easy. Sylvie snorted. Jeremy sat back in his chair and looked over at Vic. Figured out the families yet? Vic shrugged. I think it's best if I open numbered accounts for each of them. Then we slip them the account information and let them do with it what they want. No traceable money changes hands, so no tax issue for them. If they go get the money from the accounts, it's not reported. So no tax issue in the future, either. If they go, Sylvie said. Most of them will assume it's a scam, like the Nigerian prince thing. Another shrug. Not necessarily. I can make the notifications look very formal, professional, and they'll be able to contact the bank to verify the information if they choose. But I can't see any other way to get it to them without raising all sorts of flags. It's $500,000. I'll wager everyone will want to check it out at least, but if some choose not to accept, he spread his hands. He was feeling annoyed at Sylvie's objections, but also satisfied and sure of his conclusions, so Sylvie felt some of the wind taken from her sails. Jeremy was frowning as he considered Vic's words for a moment, then he nodded. Okay, we'll do it that way. The frown turned upside down. Well, Sylvie, looks like you get to have another date with your boyfriend. That did evoke laughs from everyone. Sylvie even allowed herself to join in. Two weeks and three times meeting up with Tommy again, and Sylvie finally got the rest of his password. 6Q8FELPound. Not at all complicated. Russ could have easily cracked it on his own given enough time and unlimited password attempts before the system would lock the user out. Sylvie was sure of that. But alas, those conditions weren't in place, so she had to do it the in-person way. Truth to tell, it wasn't nearly as unpleasant as many other scams she'd run over the years. In fact, sitting across the table from him while they had dinner at a nice Italian place on the outskirts of downtown, she considered that he really wasn't all that bad a guy, really. He just needed some refining, develop more of a backbone, develop some muscles, and read something besides computer books. Do that, and he'd be fine for a girl. Some other girl, not her. She didn't have the time or patience to mold him into what he should already be, and anyway, he was too young for her. That didn't stop her from smiling, a genuine smile, as they finished dinner and he got the bill. I'm interested to see your place, she said, and he paused in mid-signature on the credit card payment slip for the bill. Surprise, then disbelief, then happiness and excitement, and arousal, but he kept it from showing on his face. Mostly. When he looked up to meet her eyes, he almost appeared nonchalant. Calm. Sylvia was actually impressed by that. It's not far from here, actually, he said. Cool, let's go. He finished signing, then stood in a rush and held out his hand to her. She took it, and they went. You weren't too hard on the boy, I hope, Jeremy said as he worked the lock to Manhan's office. He was down on his knees in front of the door, probing with his lockpicks. Sylvia was behind one of the pillars out front of the building, keeping watch for wandering eyes, especially cops. Vic and Russ were in the car around the corner, waiting for the all-clear signal to follow them in once Jeremy got the door open. Sylvie snorted out a chuckle. He'll have a bit of a headache from the spike I put in his wine, but he'll be fine. 
In her ear, she heard Russ's voice carried over their radios. You tucked him in at least, I hope. Of course, I'm not a barbarian. He'll wake up in bed with a glass of water, two aspirin, and a note from Sarah on his nightstand in the morning. Touching, Vic said dryly. Never let it be said Sylvie doesn't know how to take care of a man, Jeremy said, affectionate teasing in his emotions and in his voice both. Sylvie sniffed, but didn't reply. She couldn't help but smile slightly, though. Another couple minutes passed, then, and that's got it, Jeremy said. We're in, gang. Sylvie turned to see him holding the door open for her, his hands swinging in a come-in-my-lady gesture that a doorman would make in an old movie. She rolled her eyes, then hurried inside. Manahan's personal office was all the way in the back of the office spaces to the left. It was smaller than she would have expected for a man who controlled as much wealth as he did, but it was done up nicely, even better than their rented conference space, if you could believe it. The desk was massive, mahogany for certain. The bookshelves on the wall to the desk's right were full. The stuffed leather seats to the left, plump and comfy-looking. The painting of an elderly gentleman standing in front of bookshelves that looked remarkably like the ones on the wall opposite where the painting hung, with his hand in his pocket and the other holding a gold pocket watch while he stared out from the painting with an expression of utter confidence and command was obviously old and well-crafted. Not shabby at all. If I were safe, where would I be, Jeremy said as they walked into the place. Then he pointed at the painting. Behind you. And sure enough, the painting was mounted on a swivel. And as it turned out of the way, it revealed a wall safe with a dial tumbler combination lock mounted in the wall behind it. How long has it been since you cracked a safe like that, Sylvie asked. Jeremy grinned at her. Yesterday, he cracked his knuckles. Only a few safe manufacturers that a guy like Manahan would go to. I've been practicing on all the likely candidates for the last two weeks. Then he gave a jerk of his head toward the door, and she nodded. His job was to crack the safe. Russ's job was to implant the virus in the fob and on the network computer on Manahan's desk. Vic's job was to make sure Russ didn't screw up and get the account numbers wrong. Her job was to keep lookout. So she went back to the front of the offices to wait and watch. Small change in plans, Jeremy said in the car. He was driving Sylvie back to Tommy's place to return his fob and keys. Russ and Vic had gotten out at the McMillan building and gone their separate ways, but Sylvie had left her car back at the restaurant where she'd had dinner with Tommy, so Jeremy was giving her a lift. What do you mean? When Russ was planting the virus in Manahan's computer, he found a hidden folder. He looked sidelong at Sylvie and raised an eyebrow. His blackmail folder. She blinked. Blackmail? Jeremy nodded. Bribes to officials... Records of dirty deeds by competitors. Dirty deeds that he ran for others' profit. Going back for years. Russ made a copy, I hope. Oh, yes. Client wants Manahan burned, so we're burning him. Money was going to be enough, but this will make it even better. And I know the perfect place to show it to the world. He grinned at her. When's the last time you got dressed up? Sylvie groaned. Hi there. The guy running the computer behind the display placard at the Humanitarian of the Year Awards looked up and saw Sylvie and did a double-take, then grinned. Can I help you, miss? I just always get curious about how these sorts of events work behind the scenes. You're running the audiovisual show? The guy cocked an eyebrow at her. Yeah. No DJ tonight, so it's easy. His emotions said he enjoyed looking at her but was annoyed at the interruption of his work. What application do you use? PowerPoint or... The guy shook his head. Depends what the presentation is and what the client needs. Look, I need to get back to work here, okay? So if you don't mind... Oh, I'm sorry. 
She pitched her tone to appeal to his sense of charity. Have a great night. She turned to go. Off to the left, emerging from one of the waitstaff entrances, a short, skinny man with receding gray hair in the faux tux of the waitstaff emerged and began walking toward the VIP stage. You too, said the audiovisual guy. Sylvie met eyes with Russ in the waitstaff attire, and he nodded. On cue, Sylvie turned her ankle and fell, crying out in surprise and pain that she did not feel. The audiovisual guy rushed over. You all right, miss? He crouched down beside her. Behind him, Russ diverted from his course. I'm not sure, Sylvie said. I think I twisted it, maybe? Audiovisual guy winced and looked at her ankle. Doesn't look swollen or anything. Do you mind if I... He gestured toward her foot. Nodding, Sylvie extended her foot toward him. Russ passed by the guy and reached his computer. Bending over, he dipped his hand into his pocket, then inserted a thumb drive into one of the computer's USB ports. He told her it would take 15 seconds for the files on the drive to unpack and replace the presentation that had been loaded by Manahan's people earlier. Identical file names and everything. Just had to keep the audiovisual guide distracted for that time. He touched her ankle and she winced, saying, Ah, like it hurt. Audiovisual guy frowned. Try moving it. He felt concern, but also annoyance. More annoyance over her continuing to interrupt him. She slowly rolled her ankle around, making a little sniffle as it went through a full circle, like it hurt, but had full range of motion. Behind audiovisual guy, Russ nodded at her, then pulled the thumb drive out. Audiovisual guy shook his head. Doesn't look like you have any issues moving it. He looked up to meet her eyes and gave a grin that was probably meant to be encouraging. I think you'll be fine. He straightened and held out his hand to help her up. Russ moved quickly behind him, going back through the waitstaff entrance he had just come through. Sylvie accepted the help up and took a minute to play act testing, putting her weight back onto her ankle. After a few seconds on it, she made to hobble around for a few steps, then righted herself and took a proper step and grinned at him. You're right. Thank you. I'm so sorry to have been a hassle. She intoned the words to appeal to his vanity and to his charity. No problem at all, miss. You have a good night now. She turned away, letting him get back to his duties and smiled with satisfaction. Jeremy was waiting at center stage, halfway between the entrance and the VIP stage, a champagne glass in each hand. When she reached him, he hailed out the one in his left, filled with golden, bubbling fluid, to her. She accepted, but didn't immediately drink. Good to go, she said. He nodded. A few minutes later, a woman on the VIP stage stood and moved over to the lectern. She cleared her throat and said into the microphone, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. All around the room, conversation ceased and people at the tables turned their heads to give the woman attention. I'm Sheila Easton, chair of the Humanitarian League. Welcome to our 22nd Humanitarian Awards Banquet. The crowd clapped politely, making quite a bit of noise considering how many of them there were, actually. After a moment, the applause died down and the woman spoke again. This year, we are honoring a man who needs no introduction, Terence Manahan. Another, shorter round of applause. Although he needs no introduction, we feel it was appropriate to make a short video about his career and the many things he has done to merit this honor. She turned to the right and nodded toward where Audiovisual Guy was stationed. The lights dimmed and the screen lit up. Then the video Jeremy and Russ had made over the last couple days began to play. It started with a picture of Manahan, obviously drunk, on a beach somewhere surrounded by half a dozen bikini-clad girls half his age. Terrence Manahan is not who you think he is, said Jeremy's voice over the video. He has made a career of graft, greed, and corruption. Observe. Then followed the more lurid files that Russ had found on Manahan's computer. 
one after another after another. Videos of bribes, records of forced foreclosures, on and on. Over by the audiovisual guy's station, several tux-clad men had descended on the poor fellow. Turn it off, turn it off, carried faintly to Sylvie's ears. I can't, replied the audiovisual guy frantically. Manahan delights in stealing from people less powerful than him, putting families on the street. Another picture showed up, older than the others, of a smiling, much younger Manahan in front of a house as a stricken family was led away to a taxicab. Sylvie froze, gasped in surprised shock. She saw herself in that photo, her eight-year-old self, and the crushed, defeated parents who were never the same again after that day. A gift to you, Jeremy said into her ear, and she whipped her head around to look at him. Manahan's records went all the way back. Turns out he got his start in the firm that foreclosed on your parents' house. He was the one who made it happen. The video continued. Copies of these records had been sent to the offices of the district attorney and the U.S. attorney. No doubt they'll want to give Manahan their own award. You do not need to give him yours. Jeremy raised his glass toward her for a toast. Deep affection and pride at a job well done welled up within him. Sylvie found that she was tearing up. She just looked at him speechless for a second. Then she sniffed, hard, and raised her own glass. The two glasses touched, and a little bell seemed to ring, more beautiful than even touching crystal could make. Thank you, she said. He smiled and lifted his glass to his lips. She did the same. Okay, all's well that ends well, right? Our band of lovable miscreants came through. The bad guy is going to get his in several different ways, and people are getting paid. Yay! And, uh, yeah, so what more could you want? Uh, this uh, story is one, uh, one of a couple of fantasy-themed fantasy capers that I wrote last year. Um, as part of a workshop that I did. Yeah, it's good, good fun time. Papers and heists are always, always fun. You get the team, you get the, the plot and all the kind of stuff. And uh, the thing about caper stories is you want to keep it fun. Don't get too dark. And hopefully, I did on this one. Uh, you can let me know what you like, what you think about it, and the fact that you liked it. Um, in the comments, or write me a line or whatever. I'd appreciate that if you did like this. You know what you can do to help support me writing more things like this is go buy the book. This is in the 52 Stories of 2023, Volume 1. The Kickstarter campaign for the final volume, Volume 5, ended this week. We uh, crushed our initial funding goal. We didn't quite get to the stretch goal, but that's okay. Uh, and uh, it's going out to the backers here within the next month and a half or so. Uh, but the the other stories, including this one, are available on the various books, as well on the various volumes that have been up for a while. As well, now that I've read this, I'm going to put this story out individually, and we'll eventually bundle it with something else as well. Uh, so if you go to michaelkingswood.com store, you can find uh, all my stories through the direct store from my business so you can get it to, from me so I can make the maximum profit. You can, of course, go to michaelkingswood.com slash books to read, the number two. That will get you to a universal book like aggregator that you can click on the title that you're interested in and you can pick which retailer store you can go to. And uh, so if you want to go through Amazon or Barnes Noble or Kobo or one of the others, it's all available all there. 
Um, always, you know, pretty much everything is up everywhere every now and then. I you know, could do a little audit and make sure that I haven't missed a store or sometimes in some stores, and sometimes I do. So I, you know, have to go and uh, get it up there. But for the most part, if it's out there, if there's an ebook, if there's an ebook or online physical bookstore that exists, you can find my stories there. Best to come to me though. Uh, the other thing you can do is subscribe to this channel. There's, whether you're listening to the podcast or watching YouTube or Rumble or BitChute or whatever. And uh, tell all your friends about it. And come back next week. Next week we are going to be reading volume story number three from volume one of last year. That story being a... Which one is it? Ah, yes. Another modern fantasy uh, one of my Dustin Cofield adventures. Dustin Cofield is an elf exterminator who works for a secret organization helping Santa Claus keep his uh, business going well in the face of aggression from rogue elves. And this story is called Odin's Peppermint. It's another fun one. Another one that's a little, lo- little bit longer, so you'll enjoy it. Uh, come back next week on Saturday, and we will do that with Story Saturday. Until then, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. For information on all my books, visit michaelkingswood.com or visit my web store at ssnstorytelling.com. My books are all available through all the various e-tailers, but buying direct from me nuts me the most profit. For information on new releases and other special deals in the future, sign up for my newsletter on my website. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyrighted Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music is copyright Gene Paul Zogby, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved.